You know, life's never perfect, is it? You have perfect moments, but life is a messy affair. Sometimes it gets painful. Sometimes it gets a little bit dirty. Uh, and that's just life. And we need to learn to, to take life as it comes and receive everything from the Lord's hands. But as I was saying, I, I hope you will just from time to time lift up the work that's going on around the world because our world's changing. I think all of you probably are very aware of that just within our own nation. Uh, this nation is not the nation that it was when I was a kid growing up. Uh, we have gone tragically and drastically downhill, uh, and it seems that we're speeding up uh, as we head over the cliff to who knows where. But you know, while weather changes, people change, conditions change, but our God never changes. And that's why he is the anchor of our souls. And that's why we need in troubled times and turbulent times to make sure that we are connected to that anchor that will stabilize and strengthen us no matter what may come. It's a wonderful thing to know that nothing that comes your way is beyond your ability, not only to handle, but to turn into a victory. And if you lack that confidence and that assurance, I would just encourage you to lay hold of the resources that are available to you in the Word of God and become more serious about your Christian life, your fellowship with Jesus Christ, and your interaction with other believers because uh, we probably have some unprecedented things coming in our future and we're going to need all the strength and the wisdom and the guidance that we're able to muster. I want to just remind you also that as we gather together this morning, there's a promise that we often tritely speak about, uh, but sometimes we fail to really take into consideration what it means. When Jesus told the disciples where two or three are gathered together, I am there in their midst. I'd like you to just pause and reflect for a moment as I lead us in prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ, according to his promise, is walking among us this morning. And as he walks among us, he doesn't just look on our appearance, our face, our dress, whatever. He examines the hearts. And he's examining each and every heart, and he knows exactly where we are, and he knows exactly what we need, and he's here to supply that need. And so I pray that we'll all just prepare ourselves to receive uh, as the message goes out, you know, it's one message that's spoken, but the Spirit of God takes it and applies it to each and every person in a different way. So let's be prepared to receive what he has for us this morning as we look into his word. Join me in prayer at the throne of God's grace, and let's ask that he would bless our time together. Father in heaven, as we come before your awesome and mighty and glorious throne, we know that we come in weakness, we come in frailty, uh, we come with so many areas of uh, fault and failure in our life. We come, Father, needy, but we recognize the need. Lord, you've made a promise. Your promise says that you give grace to the humble, but you resist the proud. 
Teach us to humble ourselves. You have promised that you feed the hungry with good things, but you send the rich away empty-handed. And therefore, help us to come with a hungry heart, realizing how desperate we are for the spiritual food and nourishment and strength that you're about to supply this morning. You are always faithful. You never fail. Let us therefore lay hold of that victorious provision and that victorious plan that you have for our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been talking yesterday in the sessions that we had about bearing one another's burdens, loving one another, and the title was basically Esprit de Corps, which is just really a fancy French statement for the spirit of the team. Team spirit uh, is something that every local church needs to have. It's something that every family needs to have. And essentially, team spirit boils down to this. You have a pride in the unit to which you belong. You believe that you are part of the best. You believe the best of those around you. You're willing to undertake on their behalf because you believe they're worth it. You're willing to sacrifice on their behalf because you recognize that they'll do the same for you. While it's a military concept and while it is mostly true in military units, I gave the example yesterday of our son who served with third recon Marines in Afghanistan. He did two tours, and when he came back, he told me there were guys in his unit that he didn't really like as a person, but he said, I would have died for them in a minute, and I knew that they would do the same for me. That's probably the best illustration I can give you of esprit de corps or team spirit. Why is it that we're able to build this into our military units and we have trouble building it in our churches? I think part of the reason God is going to solve for us And the reason is they are under tremendous stress. They are under desperate need. They are against hostile forces. Their back is against the wall. And they realize if I don't rely on those around me, and if those around me are unable to rely on me, then we're all going to go down. Either we stand together or we fall apart. And that's really what we're going to see. And I think in the days ahead, you're going to see a lot of these empty chairs filled up. And they're going to get filled up because when the economy starts failing, when war is no longer something far away, but something on our doorstep, when we recognize that there is danger at every turn of life, finally people are going to wake up. And it's an act of God's grace that he allows a nation to go into decline and to go into destruction because it's the only thing that will wake people up. I believe God is about to give a wake-up call to the United States of America. And so the idea of what we spoke of yesterday and what I want to deal with this morning is a very simple concept. And that is you need those around you and those around you need you. And we somehow need to pull together and unite in that bond uh, that will carry us through, as I illustrated yesterday, the band of brothers. Who is your band of brothers? Do you have a band of brothers? Do you have a support system? Do you have people that you would sacrifice everything for? And would those people sacrifice everything for you? If not, you better wake up and you better start thinking seriously about it because you're going to need it like you've never needed it before. 
Now I'm going to wrap it up this morning in this session and the next session by presenting to you the idea in a very simple little story. It's a mission story. I love stories because every story teaches a lesson. Whether it's a story of someone's victory or someone's failure, there are lessons that we can learn from it. There are things that we can gain from it. And so I'm going to tell you a story, but it's a story that's contained in the scripture. It's a story that we read of in a little book called the book of Philemon. Philemon is a book that is often overlooked. It's often discounted and yet is so rich in the great principles that we need to understand. So if you have your Bible, I hope you'll open with me to the little book of Philemon. It comes right before the book of Hebrews, right after the book of Titus. Philemon is one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. As he was a prisoner under the Roman Empire, he was being held captive in Rome. If you remember the story as it's laid out for us in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was arrested in the temple of Jerusalem. They took him out of Jerusalem because there was an assassination threat against him. They took him to Caesarea where he languished for two years. We have no writings of the Apostle Paul during the time that he was in Caesarea. And then, of course, he appealed to Caesar because he could not get justice. What a tragedy when it gets to a point where there is no justice in a nation. We're very quickly getting to that point. If you're on the right side, you can get away with anything. If you're on the wrong side, you can be in prison simply for speaking your mind. There are people in prison in the United States of America today that are political prisoners who have done nothing more than speak the truth. And the truth, as Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. With some people, if you speak the truth, it'll make them mad. And unfortunately in our nation today, if you speak the truth, you can be put into prison. Paul is in prison. Paul is writing to a dear friend of his by the name of Philemon. Philemon is a wealthy man, probably a merchant of some type, uh, probably a rich landowner, and Philemon has slaves. Let me just set the stage by saying that in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. 60 million slaves, one of them being the subject of the letter that we're going to read. God resolved the issue of slavery, not by having people march in the street, not by people trying to pass laws. He abolished slavery by Christianity, teaching the slaves to become free in Christ, teaching the masters to look on those slaves as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and gradually the whole system disintegrated. So we're going to get into the book of Philemon, and I just want you to, as you look at the, the main characters in the story, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I see myself in any of these people? Am I in a similar situation? And is there something in this story that I need to do in my life? So let's begin with the first three verses. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the main players of the story that we're about to see. One, of course, is yet to be introduced. Paul is a prisoner, and Paul identifies himself several ways through the epistle. Remember that he started out in the biblical story as Saul of Tarsus. 
Saul is a Hebrew word and it means mighty. When Paul became an apostle, he switched to his middle name, his full name under uh, Rome as a Roman citizen was Saulus Paulus Benjamitus. First name, middle name, and tribal name. Saulus Paulus Benjamitus, the mighty Saul from the tribe of Benjamin with the middle name Paul. When he became a child of God, his entire mentality shifted and he adopted his middle name Paul, which means little or insignificant. You know, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our attitude to ourselves as well as our attitude to others needs to change. We think less of ourselves, we think more of those around us. And so Paul writes here as a prisoner, and he mentions the fact that he's a prisoner five times in the epistle. He wants Philemon to realize, I am at a disadvantage. I have no freedom. There are many options that are close to me. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, a missionary of the gospel, and yet I'm unable to be out and about and traveling and do the work that I'm doing. And I am appealing to you to allow me to accomplish something of great importance, not only in your life, but in the life of someone else. Timothy, of course, is with him. He writes to Philemon, whom he identifies as a beloved friend and fellow laborer. And he references his wife, Aphia, his son, Archippus, who he calls a fellow soldier. And if you read the Colossian epistle at the end of the epistle, you will find that Archippus was a young man who had stepped in to act as pastor in the church. These people live in Colossae because the pastor named Epaphras had gone from Colossae to Rome to minister to the Apostle Paul. And while he was there, he also had been imprisoned. I want to remind you that around the world today, there are many people who have been imprisoned for their faith. There are many people who suffer. And the author of the book of Hebrews reminds us that we should never forget the prisoners who suffer because of their service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know some very sad cases we could tell you about. <coughs> Looks like my cough's going to come back on me. <coughs> we wrestled with this yesterday. <coughs> But uh, Archippus is filling the role of the pastor. And then Paul gives that marvelous greeting, grace to you and peace. <clears throat> you know, it's been noticed that grace and peace is both a Hebrew and a Greek greeting. The Greek greeting was charis, which is grace. The Hebrew greeting was shalom, which is peace. Paul unites the two together, and that's a very nice thought. But it means so much more. Grace is a one-word summary of the work of redemption. Peace is a one-word summary of reconciliation. Jesus Christ on the cross performed the work of redemption by paying the penalty for our sins. We, however, only receive the peace when we accept that gift by faith and we receive reconciliation. We are reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 4, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. <clears throat> Paul often writes of the prayers that he prays for people. Uh, if you're interested, you might want to jot down, because in almost every one of his epistles, he talks about praying and people that he prays for. And we see this in Romans 1.4, 1 Corinthians 1.4, uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. 
Paul was a man of prayer. And he tells Philemon here, I'm praying for you constantly, hearing of your love and faith. There are two of the three triads I mentioned to you yesterday. Faith, hope, and love. You often find all three of them, sometimes only two. But one thing you can know, if Paul mentions faith and love, he has hope in view. It's kind of like faith and grace. If you see the word faith, you know that grace is in the background. If you see the word grace, you know that grace is an appeal to believe and to trust and to receive that grace. And he says, I've heard of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and to all the saints. And I'm praying that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, my brother. I want you to just stop and think about this for a moment. Who can you pray for in this manner? Who can you pray for as someone you love? Who can you pray for as someone that you can say, this person's life is making a difference? This person's life is a refreshment to those around them. You know, we all know people who are a drag to be around, right? There are people that you can get in their company and you're, you walk away depressed. It's like you can be smiling when you meet them and little by little you spend time with them and it's all gloom and it's all despair and it's all how terrible life is for me and nobody uh, loves me uh, as they should and I'm just so miserable and you walk away and your chin's dragging on the ground. What a wonderful thing to have someone that you can write to and say, I know your life and I know your focus, and I know that your life is making a difference. Your life is a refreshment in the lives of other people. The word refresh, by the way, it'll come up again in the epistle, but it's a word that means to give you rest from the burdens of life. Could I ask you a question? Do you know anybody that you could go to today that would lift the burdens of life from your shoulders? Someone that would give your soul a moment of rest and refreshment. Well, Paul's kind of buttering the, the toast, if you will. He's preparing Philemon for a very big request he's going to make. And I just want to remind you as we continue going through this letter that this letter was being read in the church. Paul didn't write it just to Philemon and his family. He wrote it to the whole church, and therefore the church would be gathered together. And as it's being read, they're listening to Paul's appeal to Philemon and what it involves. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because someone had done something very terrible. And someone had done something that brought shame on the church. And that someone was a guy named Onesimus. And just to set the stage, Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. Onesimus ran away from his master in Rome. That was a death sentence. Not only did he run away from his master, he apparently pilfered something from his master, probably enough funds so that he could travel and make his getaway. Onesimus went to Rome. I don't know if his idea was, I'm going to take my wealth like the prodigal son, and I'm going to go party in the big city. But somehow in Rome, he ends up meeting the apostle Paul. I have a lot of questions. I'll know when I meet Paul and I can ask him this. Did Onesimus personally seek him out? Did the weight of what he had done finally drive him in guilt and shame to say, I know Paul's in prison here. I better get to him. He's the only guy that can help me. 
Was he arrested and thrown in with Paul? We don't know. But somehow he comes into the company of the Apostle Paul and his life is absolutely transformed. So read along with me. He says in verse 8, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you to do what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you as Paul, the aged, he calls himself an old man and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable both to you and to me. I am sending him back, therefore receive him, that is my own heart. Very interesting things. Paul uses a number of what we would call figures of speech or double entendre ideas. Uh, he says that this guy who ran away, Onesimus, was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable. It's very interesting that the name Onesimus is a Phrygian name. Uh, I don't know why, but in the ancient world, Phrygian slaves were particularly looked down on. Uh, they were particularly a scorned group of people. So this Phrygian slave by the name of Onesimus, and Onesimus means profitable. That's the meaning of the word. And so the play on words is this guy whose name is profitable. Remember I told you about Saul and Paul and the different meaning, mighty to small, great and big to insignificant. Well, here we have a guy whose name Onesimus means profitable. And Paul says he was unprofitable to you. I want to ask you a question. When people think of you, do they think of you as profitable or unprofitable? A blessing or less than a blessing? We should all think about that. He says that he is sending him back, and that reminds us of a very important principle. And that principle is that a gift that is not given in grace is no gift at all. It reminds us also that faith teaches us not to flee from our past, but to face our past and to deal with our past. And so here Paul is sending a slave back to his master under an empire where the crime that he had committed was a capital offense. Philemon had the law on his side. If he wanted to take the life of Onesimus, he could do it. When Onesimus came to Paul and Paul leads him to a saving knowledge of Christ, Paul doesn't hide what he's done. Paul doesn't whitewash what he's done. Paul says, you have to go face the music. You know, God is very gracious and God is very merciful, but he never bends the rules. He never twists the truth. And the truth is that where we have been and what we have done is a part of who we are today and it's something that we have to deal with and we have to face. And so Onesimus is going back to his master. Notice that he says in verse 13, whom I wished to keep with me. And I'll just point out that the word wish here is bulamai. It's the strongest word for a determination. Whom I was determined to keep with me. I desire strongly to keep him with me that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But again, without your consent, I wanted to do nothing 
that your good deed might not be by compulsion, but as it were, voluntarily. And again, the principle, a gift of grace, or a gift without grace and a gift without voluntary acceptance means nothing at all. You know, God opens to you and I a lot of opportunities. And God offers to us many provisions and uh, blessings and so on and so forth, but he'll never impose them on us. The greatest of which is salvation by grace through faith. God imposes that gift on no man, no woman. He offers it to all. Christ died for all. The provision is made for all. But each one has to make their own decision. You can't choose for someone else to become a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You can't impose it on them. You can't pray them into it. Certainly you can pray that God will work in their heart and make them receptive. But somewhere along the line, there has to be that little switch within their own soul that they flip that goes from negative to positive, that turns off the darkness and turns on the light and says, yes, I will receive that gift. As many as received him, to them he gave the power, the right and the authority to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so Paul is not working by force here, even though, as he says, being an apostle, he could command Philemon to do what needs to be done. And as we're going to see in the text, he led Philemon to Christ, and he's going to remind me, by the way, you owe me your own soul. Don't forget what I've done for you. I'm now asking you to do the same for someone else. Notice in verse 15, he gives a nod to the idea of divine providence. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. Isn't it amazing how God takes bad situations and works them for good? One of the greatest promises in the entire Bible, we read from Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good, but we should never stop at that point. Many people quote that verse and they say, well, God works all things together for good. Well, there's a little bit of a condition that follows to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And sometimes people will angrily quote that verse and say, the Bible says God works all things together for good, but he's not doing it in my life. Well, they just told you something about themselves. They don't love God and they're not being called according to his purpose. God took the runaway uh, act of Onesimus and turned it into something wonderful. But I want you to notice another little play on words when he talked about in verse 14, without your consent. I don't want to do this without your consent. The word that he uses for Onesimus departing is the same word. I don't want to depart from your consent, your agreement, in this matter, because this slave departed from you, now all these little things would have been very clear to the original readers of this book. Perhaps he departed that you might receive him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul wants... Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not just as a slave, but now as a brother. 
You know, the work of redemption, the work of reconciliation, the work that God does in the heart and the soul of an individual is so transformative that from the moment of trusting Jesus Christ, that entire person has been radically altered. The old man is no longer the sole possessor of that life. There is a new man. And yes, there's a battle that's going to rage for the rest of our lives between the old man, which is the sinful nature of Adam, and the new man, which is that imparted nature of Christ. And we will go through those battles and we'll lose many of those battles. But the wonderful thing is that old man will never be able to oust the new man. The new man will ultimately win out victorious. And we know that because when we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, we will stand in his presence blameless. When you trust Christ as your Savior and he imparts his life to you and he imparts his righteousness to you, you are forever seen from that moment forward in the eyes of God whether your life is victorious or whether you're failing, you are seen as a perfect, righteous, sanctified son or daughter of God. And Paul refers to it in Ephesians 1.6 as being accepted in the beloved. What does that mean? That means that when you and I walk into the throne room of God, he welcomes us as he would welcome his own son, Jesus Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us that we are to come boldly before the throne of grace in order to find mercy and help in our time of need. We don't have to come crawling and cringing. We can come in the boldness of one accepted in the righteousness of Christ himself. And that's where Paul leads us now as we go into verse 17 and 18. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you or if he owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention, by the way, Philemon, you owe me your own soul besides. What has Paul just told us in verse 17 to 19? Number one, the doctrine of substitution. I will take his place. Let him take my place. I will take his crime upon me. You let my character and my reputation rest upon him. And if there is any debt that he owes, let that debt be on my account. And so we see the principle of substitution as Christ took our place on the cross. We see the principle of imputation where his righteousness is placed to our account in the record books of God. And we find ourselves standing free standing accepted and standing beloved before a holy God. He says now in verse 20, yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. He spoke about refreshment earlier and now he brings it up again. Give me pause, lift my burden, take away this weight off my soul and refresh my heart. And how can he do it? Let me have joy from you. Another play on words. Merchants in the ancient world, as they would deal with one another, would say to one another, let me make a little profit off of you. That's actually the phrase that Paul is using here. It's a very common phrase in the ancient world, but here's the interesting thing. The root word for profit is Onesimus. Let me have a little Onesimus from you. 
Paul's actually suggesting things here that we, we're not going to know how it worked out until the end, but I think he's asking Philemon, send him back to me so that he can minister to me in my imprisonment. Let me have a little profit from you. Verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. What could Philemon do more than what he is asking for? Set Onesimus free and send him back as a free man, a new man, a changed man to be a minister to Paul in his imprisonment. He says in verse 22, Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Within about a year, the Apostle Paul was set free from that Roman prison, his first imprisonment, and uh, probably was able to visit Philemon. Uh, there are some who believe, and there, there's evidence in the book of Romans, that this is what Paul was planning, uh, that he would go to Spain. And during the time of his release, there are many who believe that Paul made it as far as Spain before he was once again imprisoned. In the second imprisonment, he writes to Timothy, and he tells him, my time is at hand. I have finished my course. I have run my race. I have kept my faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to me and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. Paul knew that his work on this earth was almost done. Let me ask you another question. If you knew that your work was going to be up in six months, would you, or your time was going to be up, would you feel that the work that you had been given had been accomplished? Because none of us are promised tomorrow. We don't know how long we're going to have on this earth. But I will guarantee you that each and every one of us was put here by God with a purpose. He has a plan for your life. His will is revealed in His Word. He tells us how all of us are supposed to live, but His plan is something that has to be discovered, and it has to be discovered individually as we seek it through His Word, as we seek it through prayer, as we apply the principles that we learn, and we live our life in a way that honors and glorifies Him, and we make those discoveries as we come to those crossroads of life to go left, to go right, and you hear that little voice of the Spirit of God saying, go this way. The tragedy is that too many of us are so caught up in the noise of this world that we're not listening to that still small voice. I want to encourage you to take time to pray, to seek the will of God, to be in His Word, and to ask Him, what would you have me to do? One of the greatest questions we can ever ask God. What would you have me to do today? Who can I lift? Who can I encourage? Who can I strengthen? Who can I rescue? As Paul rescued Onesimus. Don't let your life be lived for nothing. Don't waste your life on things that are passing away. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these things are all passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Make your life count. Paul is asking Philemon to make his life count in a very critical time in his life. He says finally in verse 23, Epaphras, this is the guy that was the pastor of the Colossian church. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends his greetings to you in Jesus as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. There's so much more in this little book that I would love to be able to pull out. We just don't have the time. But I want to end by asking you again a couple of questions. You know, questions are good. If you're never asked questions, you don't have to think of the answer. It's what used to be called the old Socratic method. Socrates would speak to his students and his disciples, and he would send them sharp or throw out sharp rhetorical questions because it makes them think. How would I answer that? So here are three questions for you. Who's Onesimus in your life? You have an Onesimus in your life. You have someone in your life who's failed. And you have someone in your life who's hurt you. Maybe someone in your life who's caused you shame. Are you willing to forgive that person? Are you willing to minister to that person to make them something other than what they were when they did whatever it was that hurt you? Who is the Onesimus in your life? I like what Martin Luther said. His interpretation of the book of Philemon was one sentence. That sentence is, we are all God's Onesimus. We're all God's Onesimus. You've been an Onesimus to someone. Someone to whom you should have been profitable. And you were unprofitable. Now the tables are turned. And I ask again the question, who is the Onesimus in your life that needs to be forgiven, that needs to be reconciled, and that needs to be brought back into a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Question number two, who's the Philemon in your life? Who is there you know who may be standing in the way of accomplishing something great that needs the encouragement and the exhortation to do the right thing? Not the right thing in the eyes of the world, but the right thing from the standpoint of Scripture. Every day we rub shoulders with people making decisions. And those decisions are so crucial because every decision has consequences. And the consequences of good decisions are always good. And the consequences of bad decisions are always bad. Is there someone you need to speak to and encourage them to do the right thing? Finally, who is Paul in your life? Who is the person speaking to you? The person reminding you of the grace of God. The person who is exhorting you to receive his grace and his mercy and his peace. Who is the person who may be telling you you're not taking the right track? Listen to that person. We all have a Paul, we all have a Philemon, and we all have an Onesimus in our life. Let's don't fail the grace of God. Let's let this story, Paul allowed the gospel story to live in his life. He became Christ to someone else. He took the penalty for someone else. He brought forgiveness for someone else. Let the gospel come alive in your life. That's the challenge of the book of Philemon. Let's pray. And again, uh, it's been a blessing being with you. And thank you for uh, allowing us to come. Father in heaven, thank you for this little book, a uh, book that is uh, really packed with so much, uh, so many principles, so many truths, so many challenges. Help us to consider the ones that the Holy Spirit's laid on our soul. When the word was spoken and that finger of the spirit touched on that sensitive area of our life and said, this is for you. Father, we just ask you to accomplish all your will through us as we go out from this place. Let us walk in the way that you would have us to walk. 
Let us live in fellowship with you. Let us love those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.